Welcome to the I Work For Him podcast. I'm Michael Miracle, producer of the I Work For Him radio program, the voice of the faith and work movement. Our mission is to transform the workplace of every Christian into a mission field. What does that look like in your workplace? Let's find out right now. However you're hearing us today, just know that we've prayed for you and know that we're hoping that something we share today will cause you to dig deeper in your faith into connecting what you hear and learn on Sunday with what you do in your 9 to 5. Because remember, your workplace, it's your mission field. And in that mission field, you and me, we may be the only Jesus our coworkers and employees may ever meet. That job that you hold, the people that you work with, none of that is by chance. Those people need to meet Jesus, and you may be their only chance. Cincinnati, Ohio. What's the Lord doing in Cincinnati? As with many cities in America, there are problems and there are solutions. But not always do the problems meet the solutions. Sometimes they just don't make sense. Today we're going to talk with Sherman and Sedell Bradley about their individual ministries in Cincinnati, and we're also going to delve into the segregation in the church, and maybe we'll get to a place in the conversation where we can learn from each other on how to break down the walls of disunity in the church and unite each other to bring the kingdom-minded business solutions to the urban environs of the United States of America. Sherman Bradley is the founder of Good Fit Training, and Sedell is the strategic director of Mortar Cincinnati. Both Sherman and Sedell pastor at New Life Covenant Church in Cincinnati, and they're both involved in so many more things like Consider the Poor, Hope Fest, and Creative Grace. Martha and I got to sit down with Sherman and Sedell just a couple weeks ago when we were on our Cincinnati road trip. And when, and when we met them, we thought, this is, we have got to have this kind of conversation on the air. Sherman and Sedell, welcome to I Work For Him. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Hi, guys. Hi. It's such a such a privilege to have you guys on here. Why don't we just start off, as we do with all guests, Sherman and Sedell, we always like to just lay the groundwork with, how did you become a Christ follower? So, Sherman, how did you become a Christ follower? Well, I started off in a church that my mother attended and my uncle pastored in uh, the middle in Cincinnati. And my mother's side of the family, most of them attended this church, uh, not too small but not too big church either back in that day, a little traditional Baptist church that would continue to instruct me, although it would be my adult years before I would finally really take root and have a personal relationship for myself. Mm -hmm. It all started way back when I was little, being drugged to church, Sunday school, Bible study, singing in the choir, Easter Sundays, quoting scriptures and poems, and so on and so forth. Mm, so you had a drug problem when you were a kid, too. Your parents drug it at church three or four days a week. There you go. I, had that, I had that same problem. <laughs> so, Sadal, let our listeners hear a little bit about your story, that how you became a Christ follower. Well, I was actually an orphan, and I was in the foster care system and at the Children's Orphanage in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my mother, who was uh, a school teacher at the time, single parent, uh, wanted to adopt a child. My nuclear family was my mother, my aunt, and my grandfather. And she adopted me as a toddler and brought me into the church that she was attending, which was a Baptist church in the heart of Philadelphia. And probably about the age of seven, 
I saw this movie that only those of us who are old enough would be able to recognize, uh, which was A Thief in the Night. Oh, yes. And oh, yeah. Thunder mm-hmm. and The Burning Hell, mm-hmm. which they showed us in youth church. And I was probably more, as an orphan, uh, concerned about being left behind and turning mm-hmm. around and waking up with my mother being gone. <laughs> so... I said, whatever you need to do to have me sign up, please have me sign up for that. <laughs> it took a while <laughs> for me to uh, come to know the Lord uh, from a perspective of fear and not love. Mm-hmm. I mean, from love and not fear. And uh, as I did and became part of worshiping Him in music and learning more about His Word, uh, I became a fully devoted Christ follower. And I have been for quite some time, and so I'm grateful for the influence of my mom and my family uh, to care for someone, uh, because the Bible says that pure religion and the Bible is to care for widows and for orphans, yes. and to keep oneself inspired from the world. And so when we think about uh, people who think about folks who are in the margins, the poor, the hurting, the hungry, um, that would classify me as that, because I don't know where I would have been. Mm-hmm. had she not decided to become a parent. Well, and what you just said, the, the poor, the hungry, those people living in the margins, there's, so, there's a lot more of those people living out there than most of us realize. And, yeah. and, and I love it when we get to draw attention to it because there's, there's a lot of people that when they find out stuff like that, they're like, I want to help. I didn't know. And, and so I love that you shared that story, and I love the fact that you were rescued as an orphan and that the Lord saw fit to put you in a home where you could get to know him personally. That's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sidel, you guys are both involved in so many things. In fact, it was if I really wanted to lay out, I, I didn't tell this at the beginning <laughs> of the show, but if I really wanted to lay out both of your resumes, we would already be done with the entire segment because you guys are involved in so many things. But mm-hmm. I loved when we were sitting down at breakfast at that uh, that that was a really great Belgian, Belgian waffle, waffle place, place in yes. Cincinnati. Uh, you are involved in this thing called Mortar. Well, your main yes. focus is Mortar. What is Mortar all about? Well, Mortar is my day job. I am a bivocational pastor. Uh, mortar is a, is a business incubator that was started in Cincinnati in 2014 by three African American gentlemen uh, who are between the ages of 30 and 40. Uh, the neighborhood that is downtown here in Cincinnati is called Over the Rhine. It was formerly uh, a neighborhood that needed to be redeveloped or gentrified, and now is the burgeoning part of Cincinnati's new downtown. And as they were walking through this neighborhood, uh, they realized that, hey, there's been a lot of residents who've been displaced, and there's a lot of burgeoning economy that's happening and we're not seeing those people who used to live here being able to participate in that flourishing economy. And so we want to start something that will help them uh, get a piece of that pie. And so they started Mortar three years ago, and it's been a really uh, kind of a roller coaster ride. Uh, they have been featured on uh, NBC Nightly News. Mortar has been featured in Forbes, uh, where two of our founders received an award for 30 Under 30 uh, Entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Uh, innovation, and the other one has received a 40 under 40. That is a local award that was here, um, Politico, Yes Magazine. And so what happened was there was this kind of takeoff of uh, mortar in the public eye. And so we've had 145 or so graduates um, 
come through our accelerator program. It's a 12-week program uh, that teaches them the basics of how to start their own business or their own nonprofit. And we have uh, a lot of partnerships with the city, with corporations, uh, with universities. In fact, we have the UC Law Clinic provides pro bono legal assistance to our businesses in the tune of about uh, $150,000 to $200,000 so far. To help okay, so businesses and operating agreements. So we have a lot of people who are partnering with us to help people succeed in business. Let's just help the listeners understand a couple of things you just said because it, it we got to drive through the over the Rhine neighborhood, so we know exactly what you're talking about. And but you guys were teaching us some things. When we were at breakfast, and I, and I want to make sure that we that we all get to understand this stuff. First of all, you used a word called gentrified. What does that mean, Sadell? Well, that means that uh, a particular neighborhood that is uh, maybe blighted or has run down, uh, that developers come in, they displace the residents of that neighborhood, and then they put in uh, new, different residents, and sometimes those other neighbors are spread out throughout areas in the other communities. Uh, it's, a, it's a redevelopment on one end, depending on how you're looking at it, and it's a displacement on another end, depending on uh, who's perceiving it. Right. And so, Sherman, you you were teaching me about this in the last couple of months. And and what was, what was it's not, uh, it, I guess, just unbelievable. As you were teaching me something, I learned something in Kansas City, the exact same thing. But when we drove through that over-the-Rhine neighborhood, we saw that. They had torn down old buildings. They were fixing up brand-new buildings. So we're talking today, again with Sherman and Sedell Bradley. And right before the break, Sedell had mentioned that the neighborhoods are being gentrified. And I asked the question because I need to understand the term, what that meant. And Sherman, I guess I'll have you just explain it to our audience if you could. Well, in our first, second, and third tier metropolitan communities around the U.S. over the last 15, 20 years, we have taken what were formerly ghettos and restructured them by creating what is described as mixed-use Facility, uh, communities where there are all three levels of housing and then more robust commerce taking place inside this geographical location. What uh, is unfortunate about this process that presents a very wonderful picture of bringing together diverse groups of people and classes is that you have to displace a large group of poor folk who they do not recreate housing that they can afford while all of this redevelopment takes place around it. That is arts and entertainment and business. And it is, uh, it's, they don't really get a say in the process. There isn't a choice. Uh, I actually had relatives who were displaced in downtown and said that they were going to be sent to a better quality of life, but unfortunately our Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority Association doesn't have nearly the number of employees needed to adequately meet the needs of the number of units that they have and so many different geographical locations that I have relatives who went into places that they thought was going to be a better place but wasn't taken care of any better than what they had come from. And then you couple that with the fact that if they're in a uh, suburban area now when everything was in close proximity in the rural, uh, in the urban context, now they have to learn how to navigate a different environment uh, with people who may or may not want them in that community. And the social service components that were in close proximity to them, because for decades that's where they had been housed as mm-hmm. um, 
residents, they're not readily accessible in suburbia. And so now you've got to take multiple buses. You've got challenges of getting there, if you can get there at all, so on and so forth. And it's just far more difficult than the picture that gets painted in the beginning when they come in and sell the community on, we're going to do this great thing for this area. Well, and when, and and we've highlighted on the show a couple of times the whole idea behind the urban desert, and what you just described is one of those things that that puts people in the spot where they can't get access to grocery stores. They they move them out of their urban environment into a spot where they can't get uh, uh, where they can't get food easily. Is that what you're talking about? Something like that as well? Like that's one of the services they can't get access to good groceries. Well, good groceries is. Uh, a challenge even when it was the <laughs> an urban mm-hmm. ghetto because it's uh, unfortunately not the community where the best of we have to offer from a business standpoint typically operates. Inside the urban core, you had check cashing places and buy here, pay here car lots and renter centers, uh, what we you know pawn shops, liquor stores, uh, fast food joints, what we would call oftentimes predatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses, they're coming to set what little life is in the community out, not coming to add to it. And that is not um, necessarily the case, per se, in some of the rural contexts where, I mean, urb, um, suburban contexts where they may get transition to well, the difficulties there are more around uh, if they have overpopulated that area, a particular area, with uh, low-income folk because they needed to get them out of the downtown communities, and then you have the difficulties of the commingling that may not have been done prior, that folk aren't used to one another in the different class value systems that are operating inside the academic arena and the neighborhood, so on and so forth. Okay. Now, now, Sedell, this is where mortar comes in. And that's what I want. You know, as Martha and I drove through the Over the Rhine neighborhood, we, we saw, I mean, it was a very active area, lots of traffic and lots of buildings. It looks like there was lots of micro-enterprise kind of businesses. How does Mortar come in and help that the situation? How, how, does, how does Mortar fit into that? Now we've got a little, a little picture. Come back in and re-explain it again, how Mortar comes alongside people to help them get to participate in some of this urban renewal. Sadell, did we lose you? So Mortar is in four neighborhoods there in Cincinnati, and four of those burgeoning neighborhoods uh, that have the populations that Sherman described. And we open up our uh, opportunities to have them start their own businesses uh, within the construct of their neighborhoods. Our motto is to build communities through entrepreneurship. Now, we know that the vast majority of people in the United States will not have uh, small businesses, and we know that as well most small businesses only employ themselves. Uh, the, the person who has started the business. That's about 90% of small businesses. But they do bring in, uh, on average, about $60,000 a year. And the, the the average person that was coming through Mortar was making $23,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the things that we are helping to get people opportunities to increase their income and potentially be able to start businesses in the neighborhoods where they live. Uh, we just recently had uh, someone open a barbecue restaurant in the neighborhood where she lived, and she has been able to employ uh, both people from Job Corps and another 10 employees uh, for her full-time barbecue business. And so 
We are trying to give people who have uh, the drive and the ambition to open up their own uh, restaurants, open up their own businesses, or even to increase their own income by tens of thousands of dollars in order to see some of the flourishing uh, happen in people's lives that is happening in the neighborhood. So talk to us about how the church is coming alongside of you to help with some of these solutions. I mean, because you've got, I mean, teaching somebody how to be an entrepreneur, I mean, there are people that have that drive, and there are people that want to have that drive, but they need a little bit of training. And, and you guys sound like you've you got a 12-week course that teaches them those things, whether they're setting up a nonprofit or a for-profit. That's really exciting. How, how is the church coming alongside you to help address some of the issues that you're dealing with there in the urban environments? Either one of you guys can, can answer that question. Well, Mortar is not specifically a Christian, per se, business, though there are several of us who are Christians who work there, and there are many Christians who are partnering in in various and sundry ways. We have some churches who help provide their space or kitchen spaces for our entrepreneurs. We have a lot of Christ-following places that have uh, allowed their employees to come and do training or become mentors or a passion mentors for people who are, are opening businesses in the same uh, arenas that they work. Uh, we have a, a couple of churches who have that kind of kind of grant uh, p- uh, potentiality to give grants to us who have granted, been granting organizations for us. So there's a few ways that uh, the church has come alongside Mortar to help entrepreneurs. Well, and I don't, I'm not really necessarily, I love the fact that Mortar isn't necessarily a Christian organization, but it's doing kingdom work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's exciting. So a question I have, and um, I'm just curious because this is reminding me of a conversation we had with a ministry in Orlando where they talked about the challenge of people that want to start their own business, be an entrepreneur, but then they don't stay in the community. How do you deal, address that so that you're actually building up the is that part of your goal to build up the and keep them in their community? Uh, it is part of the goal to keep them in the community. It's also part of the of our goal to give them access to other communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that knows uh, wants to run a business knows that you need a, a diverse populace of people who support your business. You usually can't just do it with your own small circle of friends and family. So one of the things that we do is resource our entrepreneurs outside of their circle and inside of their circle so that their businesses can grow and scale. So Sherman, how does your church, as you and Sedell lead uh, your, your church, New Life Covenant Church in Cincinnati, how is your church getting involved in bringing some of these solutions to these, these neighborhoods that, that just need hope? What are you guys doing? Well, our church, per se, has been more trying to tackle the issues of helping hurting people in general and being a place where the kaleidoscope of ethnicity can come and be represented when still in America, 83.6, I believe, percent of all churches in America are still homogeneous, meaning they are one ethnic group, which we know is not what heaven looks like, nor was that what was the intention. Uh, when Jesus came and walked amongst us and made the gospel available to Jews and Gentiles. So when it comes to the social climate, one of the things that 
we have been working diligently at, and one of the things that I, I do outside of the role of pastor through Mosaic Global Network is challenging the faith community to open its doors and to be uh, willing to address issues that are respective of class, ethnicity, and gender, uh, regardless of whether you have them represented in your congregation or not. And as we become a more and more diverse society, uh, it is important, especially when we look at divisiveness that's playing itself out in society, that we begin to be more proactive. Talking to Sherman and Sedell Bradley out of Cincinnati, Ohio. These are two pioneers really forging ahead in Cincinnati, trying to bring healing throughout their city and bring really uh, just solutions to the urban environment where people can experience the thriving, flourishing that God intended for us. And, and Sherman, I'm sorry that I had to interrupt you, but you know, you go to those breaks, that's what it happens. <laughs> I really want people to hear about why we first connected, which was about good fit training. You know, when we first talked, that's what you talked, good fit training. What is good fit training all about? Well, good fit, good fit training is about helping us with difference. So good fit installs needed ability to approach each encounter with skill and confidence to produce great outcomes, no matter what the difference, whether it's gender, whether it's class, or whether it's race. Uh, And it's important that we harness skill and confidence so that we will have these conversations and break down the walls that are dividing us. I love that. And what what I love is that there's so much biblical basis to that. But again, your organization, Good for Training, isn't necessarily a Christian organization, is it? No, it's not set up as a specific Christian organization, although we do have clients in the Christian community who are realizing that they are challenged by the fact that they do not have diversity internally, or sometimes they have diversity in the pews, but not in the leadership team, or not in the uh, artistry of the music and other aspects of creativity that are utilized inside the church body, and they want to have assistance making that transition. So again, a kingdom-focused company, I love that. And people need to understand the difference. You know, there's the people that say, well, I'm a Christian and I run a business. That doesn't make it a Christian business, and it doesn't have to be... But a kingdom-focused business can be almost any business where it brings flourishing to other people. When you employ people or when you teach people, it helps them to flourish, and that's what God intended. You know, God created all those differences on purpose, Sherman. I I know that we've got many between all of the different ethnic groups in our country. How do we learn to appreciate them? What do you teach people at Good Fit Training to help them appreciate the differences that they have? Well, the short of it is is that we have to realize we all have implicit biases. It is human nature. There's no need to shy away, hide from, or be ashamed of them. The key is we have to know what we don't know about ourselves so that we can address the issues that are getting in the way. Because when you have limited exposure, you come with limited perspective. And we have to broaden everyone's perspectives of what's going out there so that they can then come together harmoniously and work toward empathy. Because without empathy, you can't have love. Without love, you can't build trust. And if you don't have trust, you're not going to close bridges uh, or, or build bridges to the differences that are playing itself out. So it's so vital that we're willing to um, take off our preconceived notions and really have new information that can assist us with digging deeper under why we think the way that we think or we see a particular demographic, particular way that we see them.
Well, I think some of those conversations, they're, they're so necessary for each one of us, especially when we bring our faith to work. And we, a lot of times our workplaces are very diverse. Our church places are not. And yet when we're in our workplaces, we take very little time to get to know people, like where they're really from and where they're coming from and, and, and what got them where they are. And understanding and appreciating those differences, you know, I, I think in our country, we've come to appreciate and understand the differences in our food. Because many of us appreciate the foods of other cultures, but most of us don't understand a lot of the dynamics that come behind that. And you know what? I want to just say something to that. Because when you were talking, um, Sherman, about we all have biases, I'm thinking about the fact, and, you know, just I was thinking about food because I was thinking about the fact that, you know, so many of us will say, well, my mom makes the best spaghetti out there, you know, because that's what we grew up with. She doesn't. My mom does. I know your grandma actually made the best spaghetti and now we make that spaghetti. But, <laughs> but, you know, just as an example, we have those biases because they, it's just all we knew. And so Correct. I'm very curious so that I can wrap my head around good fit training. Like, how does that play out? What does that look like? Who comes to you and what is, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Well, it can be the faith community, it can be a social service organization, it can be a corporate entity or small business, even civil servants who, anyone who is engaging in the challenges of difference, this is a training, a one day or two day, that will immerse you in dialogue that can help us close those gaps and go deep underneath what's on the surface and tackle some of the familiarities of how we think the way that we think based upon what our experiences have been and broaden the experiences with new information that helps us address our biases and why we have to be very conscious of them so that they're not in the way. And how do we then give voice to others who we find, once we have this new information, are perhaps far more marginalized than others that maybe we didn't give credence to? Or perhaps we now see differently how women and the abuse that they take in the workplace is so commonplace that it's now normalized in ways that we have to dig deeper within ourselves to see that, no, that's wrong. Not mm. Just because it's normal, it's still wrong. And what do we do with this? How do we set a culture and an environment where that is addressed immediately? No longer it's a gray area or it's washed over. Uh, those kinds of things we have to delve into inside a really uh, small and intimate environment where we build safety so that folk can be open enough to address some things that they're just not aware of. With uh, those were key words, sir. What you just said there, where we build safety so we can have these conversations. That was Those were powerful, powerful words. And, and it is having the conversations. Unfortunately, the media today doesn't support having normal conversations without anger or violence. They support all the crazy people that want to yell at each other instead of Correct. people people that can just have a conversation. Because I, you know, I, as my eyes have been opened up to the plight of the human trafficking, because in Florida it's a huge issue. Huge. I mean, again, not exposed to it personally, but have been exposed to it around me. And now through conversations with many friends in the urban cores of America, understanding that there's a lot of these issues that the media tends to, I don't know, it seems like they they want to hype up certain parts of it, but they don't really want to talk about the issues or talk about solutions. And that's what I want to talk about today. You guys have the, you and, and Sidel have the fantastic opportunity in your workplaces to really help people flourish, to really help people find what God really created them to be doing. How does the Good Fit Training help 
people to flourish the way God intended them? Well, with good fit, and what's currently going on in the industry as I talk to folks who have acquired other trainings throughout the years is that oftentimes there's a lot of compliance and competency coursework that's really heady and about checking boxes and making sure that we comply with federal regulations and company policies. But what GoodFit is adding is issues of the heart, tackling cultural humility, cultural optimization, leading to cultural profitability or organizational profitability, which is no longer solely defined by profit margins. It is also defined by how you use resources and how you use relationships. Because in a global marketplace that is shrinking and becoming more and more diverse, we have to do a better job of relationship development and involvement. And we have to learn how to agree to disagree and still stay at the table and find out, find commonalities that we can build upon to go forward. Because we're never going to always agree. And right. That's not what we're after. But we do have to be civil enough to learn how to hear another person out with empathy and to respect the difference, even if we don't agree with it. And then how do we find the commonalities to move forward? And organizations that are doing that and proactive, there's data out there that's supporting that you will have less turnover, for one. <laughs> You'll have more cohesive working environments where there's greater productivity and problem solving and creativity when you have cohesive and harmonious relationships taking place, especially across diversity, because diverse people bring diverse perspectives, and those perspectives mm-hmm. are how you maximize creativity rather than everybody thinking the same way, coming from the same background. Mm-hmm. They're extremely limited in what their capacity is. Well, and, and Sadell, do we still have you with us? I know that she was, she was, okay, good. Talk to me about how mortar, and, and the, maybe just go back to your church. At your church, how you're helping people understand this diversity to reach out and, and have conversations with people. As you guys are in mortar and you're in your church, how do you encourage people to go ahead and reach out to people that don't look like you, talk like you, act like you, aren't your age? How do you help them do that? Well, first of all, uh, every leader has to lead by example. So we are individually reaching out to people who don't look like us, who are in different neighborhoods. So the things that you see us doing, whether it's Good Fit or Mortar or our involvement in Mosaic's network of churches, uh, all of those things, they'll see us out in the community interacting with all kinds of people. They look on our social media feed, they'll see us having interactions with all kinds of people, and particularly people who might not look like them or look like us. Uh, anybody that's around them. And so, first, first of all, it's lead by example. Then it's teaching. Uh, we are taught as kingdom people that we are to, to share the love, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go to every person, every creature. It's not that we're saying we're only going to share them to only black people or only rich people or only poor people. We're to share them with all people. We're supposed to love all people. Mm. And so... We are representing all people, and we are teaching our congregations to do the same. And today we're dealing with some topics, inner city Cincinnati. And we met this really fantastic couple when we were there on our last trip to up to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. We met Sherman and Sedell Bradley. These guys are working in the urban core of Cincinnati, trying to help Christ followers and non-Christ followers alike to really flourish, to bring businesses back there, to teach people diversity, people teach people to uh, appreciate each other. And Sherman, while you while we're on air, you emailed me about a pastor friend of yours that is now on the line. Can you introduce Pastor Tim Dunn for me? Yes, Tim Dunn of Life Springs Church here in Cincinnati, Ohio, has taken the charge, having a, a predominantly Caucasian congregation and in a predominantly African American community to challenge his parishioners to look at what's happening inside the community and be willing to address 
the people as well as the concerns of the people inside the community. So they've had some very rich conversations in the process of, of building and open them, opening themselves to have this kind of not just conversation, but open door. Pastor Tim Dunn, welcome to I Work For Him. Uh, thanks, I appreciate being on. Thanks, well, Chairman. So- why don't you? Why don't you just, you know, because we're going to try to cram in a lot of stuff in this last segment. Why don't you talk about sure. some of the the real key issues that your congregation's eyes are being opened up to, and what some of the solutions have been that you brought forward? Well, that's a that's a great question, and you know, part of it kind of goes back to the church itself has um, been around uh, here in North College Hill, just a North Central Cincinnati area, for uh, well into the '60s, as when we were here um, began our ministry here. And uh, the demographics around the community began to change uh, significantly in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, the church um, really tried to find its way uh, to stay connected, uh, and some of that was by, um, you know, reaching out with different service projects and things like that. But the disconnect was, I believe, that there was a there was very little relationships being built with the, just the people within the community. It was more uh, doing service for as mm-hmm. opposed to doing service with. And so mm. I came in as a... A uh, pastor from a, a suburban church, uh, predominantly all white. I uh, was ready for a transition. I was transitioning out of student ministry and uh, opening as a site pastor here. We were a multi-site church for a while, um, and I came in looking for ways to make the community, uh, the faith community, connect with uh, the, the people in and around it. And part of that is recognizing you know, the very first thing that I need to recognize is there's a problem. Um, in and of itself, you know, and that people don't look at people uh, of different colors and ethnic backgrounds as equal in a lot of ways. And um, there's a difference. Actually, Sherman was key in uh, giving me early information and just things to think about, like the difference between equality and equity and the importance of understanding that yeah, everyone has the opportunity to do, most people have the opportunity to do similar things, but they don't have the resources to get there. And so part of those conversations for us have been really important moving forward and just opening eyes uh, to um, the challenges that so, other folks are, are facing. What's been the most significant, this is my last question for you because I got some more for Sherman and Sadat, but what has been yeah. the most significant impact on your congregation as they have opened up their eyes to, first of all, seeing what's in front of them and developing relationships with people in their community? What's been the biggest impact? Well, I think the biggest impact is, um, quite honestly, been listening to the people within the church that are coming from a different background. A lot of our African-American families that have been coming for a long time, they were fearful of sharing those stories, the experiences that they've had, uh, uh, be pulled over, and, and experiences they had with law enforcement, experiences they've had within stores, and just some of the, the issues that they've faced. And when you worship with somebody, and you're you know, here all together on Sunday, and you're worshiping one true God, you're trying to listen and, and try to pay attention and, and, you know, think about who God is and worshiping in your life, and then you look over and there are these people that are worshiping the same God, they're the same um, um, plan and goal, and yet... Oh. was to start listening internally, and so you have to ask yourself, well, now that I know the story... What are we responsible for? What's our next step, and how do we take that uh, and really apply it to be the family God has asked us to be? And uh, that's so clearly brought up in, in Revelation and John, and again, in Ephesians. So that's kind of been our goal, is just to begin by listening to one another, and then once you know, it's important for you to speak up, because if you're not speaking out, then you're part of the problem. And, and that's been a big challenge for our folks, but our church has responded in a great way. Now, do you, Sherman, as you and Tim have become friends, 
What, what have your what have your churches done together to try to help each other learn and uh, to to really impact the community in a, in a more exponential fashion? Well, Tim has been gracious enough to bring me in and speak with his uh, small groups and folk who have been championing with him the transition that they have been developing. And I continue to be available as need be. And there are a couple of his members that I meet with regularly who wanted to meet and learn more personally themselves, who then go back in and assist Pastor Tim with the things that they're attempting to evolve into. Uh, we haven't com- combined both churches to do something specific, um, but we have continued to fight together for the things that we want to see happen in our city as a whole. All right, so here, here's the last question for all of you, because by then we got five minutes left, and I know it'll take up this time. <laughs> when you lo- and we'll start with you, Sadell, because I know you really need to get into a meeting, and we really appreciate you taking time out today. Talk about solutions. What is the biggest solution that you see out there and available that that the church can help bring to the urban community? Well, I probably would say that the, the biggest solution would be for the church to model for the world what unity, what shared resources kind of like the church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where they had all things common and no one was with need because they took care of one another to the point where no one lacked. If the church would actually shine in the way that the Scripture uh, tells us to shine, it would be a light to the world. What's happening, mm. unfortunately, is that the world is coming together. The church is more segregated than the schools, more segregated than the cities. If the church would actually do what is scripturally in the Bible, widows, orphans, poor, prisoners, the least of these, if, if the church was actually coming together and not segregating, if the church was actually sharing resources the way it's supposed to, it would be such a strong light, and you would see communities built. We're ready to go overseas, dump our money, make travel, to do missions, and we're afraid to go down the street. Right. And so if, if the church would do some things that are in the Scripture in its own purview, in the areas that are, are hurting and blighted and the people that are marginalized, to me that would be the greatest impact. If we would love one another, if we would uh, be kingdom-focused and not so much uh, politically focused and not so much nationally focused, but if we would actually be citizens of the kingdom the way that the Scripture is calling us to be, neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, but we're one in Christ, and the identifying mark of Christians, the love that we have for one another, John 13, 34, and 35, if we were one as Jesus was praying for us to be one, then he said that the world would know that he was sent and that the Father loves them. Mm -hmm. And right now, we're not exemplifying that level of love, that level of care, we say we don't need the government, we say all these things, but when it comes to actually sharing resources, sharing opportunity, like the church in Acts did, they were, they were loving one another, they were brothers and sisters, they were strongly connected. Yes, there was a lot of persecution at the time, but that's what we're facing in the future, and so we might yes, want to kind of get on the stick and do what we're supposed to actually right. be doing and let that thing shine 
so that we're not looking to catch up with the world, but the world is looking to catch up with us. Amen. I love I love that. Really, what you're talking about is relationships, because relationships drive that things. I mean, if, if we had if we had relationships with people that are different than us, it would drive us towards unity and it would drive us towards sharing because we'd have relationships and want to share. Sherman, you got 30 seconds to add to or or add on to what uh, Sadell said. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, right. 30 seconds. Thanks, babe. Yeah. <laughs> now you got 20. 17, John 17, 20 through 22 is what she's describing. And Jesus said that they will know that I came to earth, lived, loved, and prepared a way for you all by the way that you treat one another. And mm-hmm. we're not living up to it, as you just described. Mm-hmm. That's our number one charge. Powerful. It is so true. Uh, Sherman, you did that in 20 seconds. I am totally impressed. Listen, guys, I want to bring, uh, we got to keep this conversation going because just as, as Sadell just said so well, and Sherman, you echoed on it, we need, we need to model unity. We need to model shared resources. We need to model what the church was really supposed to be at, be about and not about big buildings and, and getting everybody inside four walls that the church was supposed to impact the community. Can we have another conversation about this in the future? Can we keep this conversation going? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Sherman and Sadell Bradley, Pastor Tim Dunn, thank you guys for being on I Work for him today. Yes. Thanks for just sharing from your hearts. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Very well. Thank you. All right, Martha, that was a great conversation. Uh, there's just so much there. But if the church would do what Jesus said, mm-hmm. it would start to impact communities and it would it would impact so many different things. I love it. Church should model unity for the world. Yeah. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. Just remember, I work for him. Thank you for listening to the I Work For Him podcast with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. Please visit IWorkForHim.com to learn more about connecting your faith and work, to join the I Work For Him nation, or subscribe to our weekly blog. You can also follow us on social media at I Work For Him to stay up to date and meet our guests. If today's message spoke to you, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your review will launch more workplace missionaries across America. That's at IWorkForHim and online, IWorkForHim.com. I work the number four, him.com.